You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Psalm 131. Today I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and encourage you to follow along in whatever version you might have with you. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Our culture admires, encourages, and rewards ambition. Making it to the top, whether to the top of one's class or to the top of one's profession, is viewed as life's highest good. Now, it has not always been so in our culture. Quite honestly, it's only recently that ambition has been elevated to the place of a virtue rather than a vice. After all, it got Satan kicked out of heaven. It continued with Adam and got him kicked out of paradise. What we need to understand is that ambition, raw ambition, is not a virtue, but it is a vice. It's an expression of pride. And it's not limited, obviously, to people who occupy secular positions. In 1993, the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, which at that time was the largest Southern Baptist church, and there are a lot of big Southern Baptist churches, was pastorless. And the pastor search committee thought they had found the man to occupy the pulpit in their church and to lead their church. His name was James Merritt. And by the way, Dr. Merritt at that time was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Snellville, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. He is now the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and still occupies the position of pastor of First Baptist Church of Snellville, Georgia. They went to him and they offered him something that certainly appealed to his ambition, to occupy the pulpit which Dr. Truitt and Dr. Criswell and others after him had occupied is a tremendous place that a man can occupy. And they added to the allurement of that ambition in this way. They offered him and told him if he would become their pastor, they would buy him a million dollar house. He and his wife would have his and her cars to match every year, new cars. He, He would have a new wardrobe given to him every season. His wife would have someone to go to the grocery for her and buy the groceries for the family without any money coming out of their pockets twice a week. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? I'm almost tempted. (laughs) But I haven't been asked. In addition to that, he was given $150,000 salary, or offered at least, that year. You know, he turned them down. They couldn't believe anyone would turn them down. 
And as one of the 24 members of that pastor search committee addressed the rest, Mrs. Hunt of the famous Hunt family of Dallas said this, people, we have seen a man of God. Because a man of God or a woman of God, whether that person is a preacher or whether that person is a business person or professional person, a student, a person of God's head is not turned by the things which the world would offer that individual. And the church can be the part of the world that is appealing even to preachers like me or like Dr. James Merritt. Now, is ambition always wrong? That's a very good question. And as I read from this book, and it's having an impact on me, as you can tell, from C.S. Lewis last Sunday, I'd like to read another question which was asked C.S. Lewis, this greatest of apologists of the 20th century. He was asked the question, for, is it wrong for a Christian to be ambitious and strive for personal success? And this was his answer. Listen carefully. It is easiest to think of a simplified example. How would the application of Christianity affect anyone on a desert island? Would he be less likely to build a comfortable hut? The answer is no. There might come a particular moment, of course, when Christianity would tell him to bother less about the hut, that is, if he were in danger of coming to think that the hut was the most important thing in the universe. But there is no evidence that Christianity would prevent him from building it. Ambition. We must be careful what we mean by it. If it means the desire to get ahead of other people, which is what I think it does mean, then it is bad. If it means simply wanting to do a thing well, then it is good. It isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can possibly be acted, but the wish to have his name in bigger type than the other actors is a bad one. The same questioner continued with a question in the same vein, and this was the question to C.S. Lewis. It's all right to be a general, but if it's one's ambition to be a general, then you shouldn't become one? Here's his answer. The mere event of becoming a general isn't either right or wrong in itself. What matters morally is your attitude towards it. The man may be thinking about winning a war. He may be wanting to be a general because he honestly thinks he has a good plan and is glad of a chance to carry it out. That's all right. But if he is thinking, what can I get out of the job? Or how can I get on the front page of the Illustrated News? Then it's all wrong. And what we call ambition usually means the wish to be more conspicuous or more successful than someone else. It is this competitive element in it that is bad. It is perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or look nice, but when the dominant wish is to dance better or look nicer than the others, when you begin to feel that if the others danced as well as you or looked as nice as you, that would take all the fun out of it, then you're going wrong. Do you understand the difference between ambition that is wrong and aspiration to be the most that God would want you or me to be? It is perfectly right to be dissatisfied with where you are in your personal spiritual development or in your personal development in a general sense. It's okay. But what makes it wrong is when you and I begin to measure ourselves by ourselves or measure ourselves by others and compare ourselves to others and enter into a spirit of competition. This bleeds over into the church of Jesus Christ, and we must be very careful that we do not fall prey 
to this oldest of sins, the sin of pride. It's hard to view pride as a sin when it's held up on every side as a virtue and rewarded as an achievement. We look again now at Psalm 131 for a consideration of the alternative to ambition. And what is the alternative to ambition? Well, the alternative to ambition is spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity is marked by two characteristics given to us in this passage of Scripture. The first mark of spiritual maturity is humility. Look at this first verse of Psalm 131 again. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. And actually the word for haughty is lofty. In other words, lifted up. The picture that David is painting here is of an individual who has lifted himself up above others and is looking down upon others. And David says, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes lofty or haughty. I'm not looking down on people anymore, Lord. Nor do I involve myself, he goes on to say, in great matters or in things too difficult for me. So what is humility? Humility, in a nutshell, is selflessness. The person who is truly humble is a person who is not self-conscious at all. The personification of humility was represented in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said of himself, I do nothing of myself. As our worship team led us in music a moment ago, they were basically saying what this passage of Scripture is saying is that they know and we should know what Jesus knew, that if anything good comes into his life, it comes from the Father. Jesus was totally self, selfless in his approach. He was not self-conscious at all. A verse of scripture which speaks of this is a question which was asked by Jeremiah the prophet to his secretary, Baruch. And he asked Baruch, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Now notice the first part of that question. Do you seek great things for yourself? Should Christians seek great things? By all means, we should seek great things, but we should be sure for whom we are seeking them. We should seek great things for God. Call to me, God says, in the same book of Jeremiah, and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. We as Christians are to be people of faith who dream great dreams. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, to him be glory in the church and the world forever and ever. So yes, we are to see great things, but not for ourselves. This distinguishes the person of humility and the person of spiritual maturity from the person of pride, ambition, and spiritual immaturity. Who is responsible for this process of humiliation or humility in our lives? Well, I'm responsible for it. I think the psalmist shows that he was responsible for it because in the second verse he says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. This echoes what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5 in the fifth verse. Now listen carefully. In teaching the elders of the church who were the leaders of the church, this is what the word of God says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now, who dresses 
me in the morning. Does my wife dress me? Well, you don't know whether she does or not, but I'll be quite frank with you. I dress myself every morning. I pick out the clothes I'm going to wear. I put them together, whether they look good or not together is another point. Maybe if I were to consult my wife, it would be better. But I clothe myself every morning. You and I should just as surely when we wake up every morning clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility toward one another. So who's responsible for our humbling? We are. But not only are we responsible, but God is also responsible because in 1 Peter 5, 5, not only does the Word of God say, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, but it goes on to say, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when you and I insist upon being ambitious in the wrong sense of the word, we insist upon continuing to walk in pride, we become the opponents of God. God opposes us, and God has a way of reducing us. Now, how is our humility to be expressed? Well, it's to be expressed in serving the Lord by serving each other. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, and the concept of selfish ambition would suggest that there is something that is positive in the area of ambition. Going back to what I said earlier, if we have ambition for God, it's positive. And our ambition to God will be expressed in our serving one another. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Here is another characteristic of the humble person. A humble person is selfless and not self-conscious, and the humble person is thinking about the other person more than he or she is thinking about himself or herself. Now, do you remember the story that's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark when the mother of James and John came to Jesus and she bowed before Jesus and Jesus asked her, what do you want? And she rather boldly said, I want something for my boys. I want you to give each of them a position of favor in your kingdom. Give one the position at the right hand and one a position at the left hand. Parents, listen carefully. Do you know it's possible for you to have selfish ambition for your children? Do you understand this? Do not be mistaken. And the reason you want it, if you want it, is because you want it for you, and the, that's the bottom line, because you want it to reflect well upon you. Now, I reiterate, you as a parent or I as a parent should want our children to glorify God. That is an ambition that is a worthy ambition. But be careful that you and I do not fall into the mistake that the mother of James and John made. Now, what did Jesus go on to say to her? She said, he said to her, you really don't know what you're asking because it's going to be tough to occupy the position at the right hand and the left hand of me and my kingdom. But your boys are going to get their desire and you're going to get your desire. Isn't that just like the Lord? Sometimes we go to the Lord and we ask him for things not having a clue as to what we're really asking for. But God in his sovereignty used James. What happened to James? Let me ask you, what happened to James? As far as I can tell, he lost his head. He was the first Christian martyr. He got his head cut off. What happened to John? He spent his latter years in exile on the island of Patmos. This is what happened. So 
humility is expressed in service. And what is its outcome? Well, hold your place here in Psalm 131 and turn a few books toward the back of your Bible to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on high and a holy place, now get this, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in some versions say humble in spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So what is the outcome? The outcome is that God dwells with those who are lowly, with the humble. Do you want God to dwell in the greatest expression in your life or with your life? Then humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt you. The mark of maturity is reflected in humility. It's my capacity to say, Lord, it's okay. If you want me to live in obscurity, if you want me to be small and insignificant, if nobody ever knows anything about me, Lord, if that's your desire for my life, I'm okay with that. Now, the second mark <clears throat> or characteristic of the spiritually mature person is contentment. Now, let's look at verse 2 in our passage of Scripture. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother my soul is like a weaned child within me. The road of contentment or to contentment is the road less traveled. And there's good reason for that. It's a rough road. Do you get the picture that David is painting here in verse 2? You know, David traveled a rough road in his life to the point that he became hum humble and content. You may remember that he was picked to be the king of Israel. And at the time he was picked to be king, his father saw no great future for him because he had seven other brothers. And when Samuel the prophet came to Jesse's house and he said, I have been sent here by the Lord because one of your sons is to be anointed the king of Israel. And all those sons came by, one by one, and he saw Eliab, who was the eldest, and Eliab was very, very good to look at. He seemed to have all the qualities, the bearing of a king. But the Lord said to Samuel, it's not Eliab. And he went through all the seven sons. And finally, after Jesse had gotten no confirmation from the Lord, he asked, rather, after Samuel had gotten no confirmation from the Lord, he asked Jesse this question. Do you not have another son? He said, yes, I have one more son, but he's just a little shepherd boy. And what did the Lord say through Samuel? Bring him in. And he brought him in, and he was the one who was anointed to become king. Do you know how many years lapsed between his anointing to become king and his actual ascension to the full throne of Israel? He spent 10 years as a fugitive running from King Saul. He was treated by his own admission like a dead dog or like a flea. That's what David said about his fugitive status. 
But not only that, there were seven and a half more years that he spent in Hebron, a little country village down in the southern part of Judah from which he established his reign over Judah, but not over Israel. Seventeen and a half years lapsed. It was during that time, undoubtedly, that David became humble and that David learned to be content. He probably reached the place in his life that he realized that it really didn't matter to him whether he ascended to the throne of Israel. It really didn't matter whether he was going to be viewed as a person of greatness. Now look at this very quaint yet instructive illustration that David chooses to describe the spiritually mature person as being a person of contentment. He compares the process of becoming content to the process of weaning a baby. Now many of you mothers present today have nursed your babies when they were growing up. And there came a time in their lives where you had to wean them away from your breast. Now that was tough, wasn't it? It was hard on the baby. Have you ever seen a baby being weaned from its mother's breast? Have you noticed how confused the baby is? Have you noticed how restless the child is? Have you noticed how angry the child gets? Have you noticed that the child is resistant to this process of being weaned? Have you noticed that the child feels rejected by the parent who is doing the weaning? Isn't that true? Now understand, this is a picture of a transition that must occur when you and I move from being spiritually immature to being spiritually mature. And this, by the way, is the tougher part of becoming spiritually mature. It's one thing to be humble, but it's quite another thing to be content. Remember that this road to contentment is the road less traveled because it is so hard. It's not only hard on the child, understand it's hard on the mother too. How many mothers present today when their child was being weaned, especially your first child, how many tears did you shed as that child was crying because you loved the child, you cared for the child, but you knew the best thing for the child was to be weaned from you. You knew that child had to be separated from you in such a way that the child could mature and go on. Do you see that God is comparing himself in this psalm to a mother who is weaning her child as it relates to you and me in the process of our becoming mature? And there comes a time in every person's life who really goes on with God where God cuts the apron strings, where God weans us away. May I give you an illustration, many of which I could find in church history. It's the story of a woman by the name of Catherine of Siena. She was a 12th century mystic. And she had the most wonderful relationship with Jesus. She would spend days on end locked away in her room, cultivating her relationship with the Lord. She sensed his presence as she grew in her relationship to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, just in an instant it seemed, she sensed that the presence of the Lord was gone. She did not feel him anymore. Here she was, a woman of incredible faith, yet all of a sudden she felt the Lord no more. And she sought the Lord, and she sought the Lord as she had before, but there seemed to be no response on the part of the Lord. And then it was as if all those memories of the closeness that she'd had with the Lord were gone. She began to have her mind filled with all kinds of foul temptations. And this went on for days and weeks and months and then into years. And then as suddenly 
as the Lord had seemingly left in terms of his presence, the presence of the Lord returned to her. And she was rather angry at the Lord. And she said to the Lord, Lord, where have you been? When I was undergoing such incredible trials and temptations, where were you, Lord? And then in the quietness of her heart, this is the answer which the Lord gave. I have been in your heart. Even though you did not feel my presence, I was with you. And it was only by virtue of my presence that you were able to overcome the difficulty that you experienced in your life. Turn to the book of Lamentations for just a moment. It's after the book of Isaiah and then after the book of Jeremiah. Let's look at Lamentations, the third chapter. begin with verse 19 of Lamentations chapter 3. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silenced, silent, since he has laid it on him, that is, God has laid the yoke on him, let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, this is the picture of the nursing mother and reflective of our father who wings us. If he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Now this message is a message that has relevance to someone here today. Not maybe to many, but to some who are here today. Because you're going through what has been commonly called the dark night of the soul. In your life, it seems as if you've been abandoned by God. Let me assure you that your father has not left you. Even though you may sense that he has left you, you may be wondering, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my faith? You've confessed every sin you know to confess in your life. You sought the Lord with all your heart, but he does not seem to be present. He doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. May I tell you, he's present, even though you cannot sense him. What he's teaching you is the most important of all lessons for a child of God, and that is the lesson of learning to walk by faith and not by sight, to walk by faith and not by your feelings, to travel this road that is less traveled, less traveled to eventually reach your destination of contentment. This is a rough road that we travel because it's a long road. The testimony of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, you probably know it, he said, I have learned to be content in each and every situation. I love the fact that he said, I have learned. It was not natural for him. As godly a man as he was, it was not normal for him to learn to be content, nor will it be for you and me. It's a process that we go through to learn this whole thing of contentment. 
We want presence from God rather than the presence of God. We show our childishness by relating to God as if he were Santa Claus. It's give me, give me, give me. Last week we looked in some degree at the life of Job. And what we concluded was that all that happened to Job was designed to strip him of self-reliance and to stir him to God-reliance. Now, let me say something from the book of Job at this point. <coughs> Excuse me. In Job 34.9, Eliab makes this observation of Job. This is what he said. He said, Job said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in the Lord. Now, this is something else that God was seeking to do in Job's life. Notice what he said. Let me repeat it. Job said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in the Lord. So what does that tell us about the reason that Job had walked uprightly in a blameless manner? What had really been his bottom line motivation? It was the profit he gained from being related to God the Father. Although he didn't know of the concept of Santa Claus, he looked to God for what God could do for him. That was what he was looking to God for. Just like a baby who is nursing looks to its mother primarily for what the mother can do for the child. But then what did God do in Job's life? He did in Job's life what he does in everybody's life whom he really uses. He cuts off the supply of what he's doing, or at least it seems like he does, cut off the supply of what he's doing for the immature Christian so that Christian can get weaned away from wanting, wanting, wanting to where he's satisfied or she is satisfied in having the relationship that is offered. We, refer, we prefer, rather, the gifts of the giver to the giver of the gifts. Here's a couple of questions we need to ask ourselves. Do I worship God or my experiences of God? Do I worship God or my idea of God? We have a twisted concept of who God is. We treat him much like we would treat a bellhop. He's like a heavenly bellhop to do our bidding. He's like a genie. We treat him like a genie to do what we want him to do. Thomas Akempis, who wrote the classic The Imitation of Christ, had a, an interaction, so he records, with Jesus. And this is what Jesus said to him, and he recorded the words. A wise lover regards not so much the gift of him who loves as the love of him who gives. He esteems affection rather than valuables and sets all gifts below the beloved. A noble-minded lover rests not in the gift but in me above every gift. Now here's a question for you. Do you value Jesus more than what Jesus can do for you? If Jesus never did another thing for you, would that affect the way you felt about Jesus? Now, the truth is, we all struggle in this area. We're a lot like the prodigal son. You may recall when the prodigal son came to the father, he said, give me my portion. 
And then he went away and he squandered all his resources. And the Bible says he came to his senses and on his way back home, he decided that he was going to offer himself to be a servant to his father. And when he got there, he said this, make me your servant. From a posture of saying, give me, Father, he becomes a man who says, make me, Lord, your servant. This is what God is about in the life of everyone whom he really uses. God is about the business of leading us down the road to contentment, which I repeat is the road less traveled because it's a rough road and it's a long road. But quite frankly, it's the only road that's worthwhile. You probably remember the poem by Robert Frost where he said, two roads diverged in the wood and I, I took the road less traveled by and it made all the difference. If you and I really want to fulfill God's intended purpose for us, we're going to take the tough road. It's a rough road and it's a long road. It's the walk of faith. It's a walk that will say, if God doesn't ever give me another feeling of his presence again, if God never does another thing for me again, as long as I live, I'm going to follow that Lord as he walks the pathway and blazes the trail for me. Now, that's what God wants out of our lives. The picture that is painted for us in Psalm 131 in verse 2 where David says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. It's really a picture that's repeated in human relationships all the time when people really grow up, isn't it? Think about your own development from childhood into adulthood. Whereas there was a period in your life when the only thing you wanted from your parents was a gift, you have grown to a place in your relationship to your mother and to your father where you delight in their friendship, you express gratitude for the care which they have given you, you accept their values, you rely on their counsel, you find great joy in their approval. Our Heavenly Father desires the same thing from us. Are you clinging to God for his gifts or for himself today? Are you satisfied with God minus any blessing God might bring to your life? The Word of God says to us, seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. I never forget my own experience to a small degree with being weaned away from the Lord. And you know, what I've discovered is that this weaning has to occur, it seems like a lot of times for me, Seems like I'm weaned away and, and I'm moving in maturity and all of a sudden I find myself wanting to be blessed by God again. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting the blessing of God, but if that's the primary motivation of my life, self-interest is, that is wrong. There was a period in my life when I felt like God had abandoned me. Now I knew better. I knew what the Word of God said. I didn't sense His presence. I would pick the Bible up and I would read it, just like I had always done before, but there was no evidence of God's presence. I didn't feel God at all. I had gotten to a place in my life where I actually, and this is the way I described it to myself, I didn't talk to anyone else about it, 
because I didn't feel like it would be right for me to do that. According to Lamentations chapter 3, where we read from earlier, the Word of God says, let a young man, and at that time I was younger than I am now, but let a young man bear the yoke in silence. Don't go blabbing about how hard you've got it. It's what the Word of God says. Just, just be a man about it. Be, be mature about it. it. It was tough, though, to be quiet about it. But the way I describe myself, I felt like a stepchild of God. I had no problem believing that God would take care of somebody else. But in my own experience, I was not having what I thought was his care and concern for my life. And then the Lord revealed this psalm to me. It, actually, the time he did it was in 1993. It's been eight years ago. And to some extent, I had lived a charmed life spiritually until that point. But when the Lord showed me this psalm, he said, this is what I'm doing in your life, Mike. And this is what I do in everybody's life that I use. I have to wean that person away so that person will love me for me and not for what I can do for him or for her. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus today? Well, many of you don't. Many of you don't even understand what I'm talking about today. Someday, hopefully, you all will understand it because it is the walk of faith and it is the way to maturity. May God grant that we all grow in maturity as we learn to be humble and content regardless of our circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your love for us, how it's never-ending. It's constant. We ask you now, Lord, to continue to minister to us and show us how to walk by faith and not by sight, how to walk by faith and not by feelings. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.